going to start at uh, Peter's sermon there in Acts chapter 2. I think it's around verse 14. Um, let's have a look here. Chapter 2, verse 14. Now, before we get started, real quick, quick review from last week. For those of you who weren't here, we talked about the Holy Spirit being poured out. Um, and we discussed the five reasons. There's probably many more, but we talked, we discussed five reasons why the believer should speak in tongues. And, um, and it was really neat that out of Corinthians 14, we saw how Paul was telling the church at Corinth, look, you need both. You can't just speak in tongues and you can't just prophesy without tongues. You need both. And one of the things that I think is really neat, and we always have this in, in church history. We always think we have to get rid of one to accommodate the other. I mean, how many have ever been in churches where they were strong word churches, but they didn't move much in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Or you were in churches where they moved strongly in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they did not move very strongly in the Word of God. So, you know, I always, I remember um, in, when we lived in Bradford, um, some of you may be familiar with the evangelist Smith Wigglesworth. He's from Bradford. And, and he, in his books said that in the last days, God is going to raise up a move of God where the Spirit and, and the Word, amen? We don't need to, uh, you know, throw out the Bible and, you know, and get rid of the Bible just to have, you know, a move of the Spirit. We can have the Word and the Spirit, praise God. And to bring the Word, we don't always have to throw out, you know, the manifestations of the Spirit. Um, my heart's desire, and I know yours is, is that we have a, a strong, healthy balance of both. The problem with the Corinth church is when they got together, all they did was speak in tongues. Nobody preached the word. So Paul said, hey, you can't do that. He said, forbid not the speaking of tongues, but let all things be done and decently in order. And the key there is, let all things be done decently in order. Let them be done decently in order, but let all things be done, Amen. So many times to get order, we let some things be done. But Paul said, let all things be done. Amen. Praise God. So we talked about that a little bit. And we left off with, um, with oh, yeah, the other thing that I thought was good last week that we talked about was the progression of unbelief. Um, notice in chapter 2, um, it says that when they began to speak in the Holy Ghost, verse 4, and other tongues, remember, they spoke, but the Spirit gave utterance. Now, while this, noise was, uh, while this was noised abroad, verse 6, they were confounded. But then, verse 7, they were amazed. They were confounded, then they were amazed. All right? And they say, we hear them proclaiming the wonderful works of God. And look at verse 12. It says, they were all amazed and were in doubt. So they went from amazed, you were confounded, like, what's, what, I don't get, oh, wow, this is amazing, there's a miracle taking place, I've never seen this before, wow, and then, is this really God? Doubt kicks in, and doesn't that really happen when the manifestations of the Spirit are trying to happen in church? We got, you know, the thought, I don't know whether that's God or not, is this really God? You know, you, you think it's kind of cool at first, and is this really God? So then they were in doubt, and then once they begin to doubt, then they begin to mock. 
all right? And usually that's what happens, especially in church history with the move of the Spirit and all the powerful revivals. You know who always mock the current revival? The ones that experienced the last one. The ones who God used in the previous move of God always begin to mock what God is doing in the present. So they begin to mock. And one of the things they thought they were, uh, they thought they were drinking, it says, the, others mock, said, these men are full of new wine. All right? New wine. Now, new wine is that wine that comes, it's the potent wine, it's the really sweet wine that comes from drawing the juice out of the grape before it is actually pressed. So it's really sweet and it's really potent. And so they must have thought that, you know, they were on the good stuff, amen. They were on the 80 proof, amen. They were like, man, these guys are, they're off their rocker here. And they, so they accused them of being drunk. Now, here's the thing. Why do you think they thought they were drunk? Because maybe they were staggering. Maybe they were, you know, they were talking in tongues. And maybe someone were on the floor laughing. There was great joy, I mean, have you ever been, you remember when you were in the world and you, you were out and, you know, after about, uh, you know, six or seven later, you know, things begin to lighten up a little bit, you know, but this is how these guys were acting and, and they were accused of being drunk, but they weren't drunk. And verse 14 says this, Peter standing up with the 11. Now, remember, I like that now, Peter standing up with the 11. Remember how we saw when Peter how the Lord brought him back into the fold because originally at his resurrection, they said, go tell Peter and the disciples. They didn't kind of include Peter in that, but the Lord restored Peter back to his discipleship in that beautiful uh, time on the beach side when he said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love me three times. Peter denied the Lord three times. Peter asked the Lord to confirm his love to him three times. Beautiful restoration process there. So Peter now, standing up with the 11, he lifted up his voice and said, you men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Underline that word, words. For these are not drunken as you suppose seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now, the third hour of the day was the hour of prayer. That was about 9 a.m., all right? Um, you know, the day, the day started in the Jewish um, calendar at 6 a.m., and then 9 a.m. was the hour of prayer. So, I mean, these guys were obviously, you know, you know, at a time of prayer, and they were acting like drunken men, but they were accused of being, you know, on, on the hard liquor here. And so he said... These men are not drunk as you suppose. And then I love how my dad, when the move of God in 95 in the revival, when everybody was staggering around, drunk in the Holy Spirit, he said, these men are not drunk as ye suppose, but they are drunk, but not as ye suppose. But they are drunk, but not as ye suppose. You see, they were drunk on the new wine of the Holy Ghost, amen. Paul told the church, he said, be not drunk with wine in excess, but be filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. You, the believer gets to a place where you are so filled with 
the Holy Spirit, that you begin to act like a drunken man. I remember one time, <laughs> oh my gosh, there was uh, when the Toronto thing was hitting and Ken and Lois Gott were from Newcastle in England. And there was such a powerful move of God up there, man. And I was driving. We had a team from America coming over and, and visiting. And so I was the bus driver. But I got so blasted in that meeting that I, was, I could not drive. I mean, I would, they literally had to like, four men had to like carry me onto the bus. I was so intoxicated in the Holy Ghost. I just, I could not move. I would laugh and then I'd cry and then I'd laugh and I'd cry and I'd try to stand up and I'd fall down. It literally was a Holy Ghost intoxication. And there is a thing of being drunk in the spirit. And if you've never experienced it, I highly recommend it. It is fun and it will change your life, man. But I'll tell you one of the things that has to happen for that to take place is you gotta be willing to become undignified. You know, in the night, remember the movement of God in the 90s, man, you know, when women used to, you know, with the big hair and everything and the makeup and stuff, they'd get so wiped out, they'd come off the altar, they'd have all the mascara running down their face and the hair was all over the place, all the, all the aqua net had just broken free and the hair was just like a big beehive now. And, uh, you know, people were staggering all over the place. But you can resist that. Because I remember when I was in, in, when the Lord touched me, just out of nowhere, my hand just began to just kind of wave like this. And I'd always been afraid of the shakes as a believer. So when my hand began to move, I thought, oh, God, are you, don't give me the shakes, please, whatever you do. I don't want to, don't give me them shakes. So my hand began to move. And I remember subconsciously thinking, well, you don't, why are you moving your hand? Just stop moving your hand. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, you can, move, you can stop moving your hand if you want. Or you can just let it go. And, and I let it go. And as longer, the longer I sat there, I was laying on the chairs. And as long as I sat there just waving my hand, the, the, the weightier God's presence came. The weightier of his glory it came stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where the meeting was over and they said, Jeremy, come on, you gotta drive the bus. And when I went to stand up, it was like in the old days when you've been in the pub and then you go out and it's ice cold and man, it just hits you. I mean, I went to stand up and it was like, oh, I mean, I was staggering like a drunken man. It was beautiful. So this is why Peter is defending these guys. They're not drunk as you suppose, but they're acting drunk. Verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. All flesh, Jew and Gentile, every single human race, the whole human race. Yeah, there's only one human race, isn't there? I just, that hit me. There's only one human race, but every, all races in the human race. Spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Sons and daughters. It's not just for men. It's for men and women. Both genders shall prophesy. Remember what Moses said in Numbers 11. 
I wish that the Spirit of God would fall on everybody and that you all would prophesy. You know? I mean, it's a shame that women have been kept down in the church from preaching. You know, religious denominations, you know, misinterpret the Bible and they keep women from preaching God's Word. He says he's going to pour it. Does it say, I'll pour out my Spirit on just the, the men there? No. Sons and daughters, men and women shall prophesy. And then look at this. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. The young and the old, and on my servants and on my handmaids, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. All right? So anytime in the Old Testament where you ever saw the Spirit of the Lord rest on an Old Testament saint, it says they begin to prophesy. Do you guys remember that story of Saul when, he, when the Holy Spirit came upon Saul? It says when the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, it says he became another man and he began to prophesy. Peter, did he become another man when the Holy Spirit fell upon him? You betcha, because he stood up and publicly began to declare the word of God, where before pre outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He was hiding by the fire, denying the Lord. Now the Holy Ghost has come upon him and he has boldness to proclaim with strength the things of the Lord here. And that's what the Holy Ghost does for you. That's why the church needs the Holy Spirit for the boldness. You can be a believer, but you can be a believer and not have the boldness. But I'll tell you what, when the Holy Ghost fire hits you, you will receive boldness and you shall proclaim. You will be prophesying. And so it says here in verse 19. Now, I want you to draw a line between verse 18 and verse 19 for a minute here. And let's go to the original text of the book of Joel here for a moment. You remember I taught before where... The Bible, Paul tells Timothy, you must rightly divide the word of truth. Amen. Rightly divide the word of truth. And then we went to that place where um, Jesus is speaking in his hometown and they hand him the place in the scriptures of Isaiah. And he says, um, he says, this is the year of the favor of the Lord. And he stops and he says, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. But where did he stop at? He stopped at the comma where after the comma it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. This is the year of the favor of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. So there is a division in time between the age of grace, the church age, which is the year of the favor of our Lord. And I love how his mercy is a year and then it says, in the day of judgment of our God. And his judgment's just a day. All right? His mercy is so much greater than his vengeance. God's desire for mercy and grace far outweighs his desire to judge nations. Amen? The judgment is only a day, but his mercy is a year. And, but the Lord says, this day has been fulfilled in your what? the year of favor, and that's the, that's the time frame that we're living in. And so we have the same thing happening here in the prophecy of Joel. So Joel chapter two, say amen if you're there. And uh, Joel is just a short little book sandwiched between 
Hosea, and I think Amos, right? Um, yeah, between Joel, Amos and uh, Hosea. So Joel, chapter 2, is what Peter's quoting here. Now in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the what? The day of the Lord cometh, for it is near at hand. So the context in this chapter is the day of the Lord. Now in in prophecy, and not prophecy like you're speaking and you're declaring a word over someone, but prophecy as far as eschatology or last days, a study of the last days, all right? There is the day of the Lord, which is when the Lord comes to the earth. We learned about this in Revelation. The Lord comes down to earth to judge the nations. That's the day of the Lord. But we have the day of Christ where those that look for his appearing will be caught up into the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. That is called the day of Christ, all right? That is the, the catching away of the church, which a lot of people like to call the rapture. But you won't find the word rapture in the Bible, all right? The actual word there is to catch away or to catch up, all right? Like Enoch, it says Enoch was caught up. The same way that Enoch was caught up alive unto God is the same way that the church will be caught up alive unto God if you're, if you're still alive here on the earth, all right? So there, but this day of the Lord here, this is when God is coming to judge the earth. So the context here in Joel is about God's vengeance, all right? Now look at this, verse four. He's talking about this army that's coming and it says, and the appearance of them is of the appearance of horses. And as horsemen, they shall run. The noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap like the noise of a flame of fire that devours the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. So this is a, a, the Lord's army. This is an army coming down to, to, to bring vengeance on God's enemies, right? Now, there's a couple of things about this that are really cool. Look at uh, verse 7. They will run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like a man of war. And they will march every one on his way and will not break rank. All right? So these guys are moving fast and no one's out of step. They're in complete unison, an army charging. And look, at here's another funny thing in verse 8. No one shall thrust another. So if you're moving at a fast pace and you have weapons, you're not, you're not going to take out your, your fellow person. There, no friendly fire here. That's what we're talking about. All right? You guys familiar with the term friendly fire? Friendly fire is when, you know, you fire upon your own troops, your own units. All right? What he's saying, there's no friendly fire going to happen here. And look, it even, gets even more miraculous. It says, they shall march everyone in his way, verse 8. They won't thrust one another. And look at this. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. Now, this is a special type of army here. If they fall upon a sword or if they get shot with an arrow or some sort of a weapon, it will not hurt them. They shall run to and fro in the city and shall run upon the wall, and they shall climb upon the houses. And they will enter in at the windows like a thief. 
And the earth shall quake before them, and the heavens shall tremble, and the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. Whose army is this? This is the Lord's army. And you know who that army is? It's you, and it's me. Because Revelations, we saw in chapter 19, it says that when Jesus appears out of heaven... The saints will ride with him, those clothed in white. And this is the story that always fascinated me as a kid, that my dad used to tell me that when we would come and we would fight for Jesus against his enemies, that the enemy would try to shoot us and they would not hurt us. That the enemy's weapons would be, they would not be able to take us out. And that's exactly what Joel prophesies here. That when God's people come out of heaven to fight the Lord's battle with him, that the enemies of, of God on planet earth, they will not be able to touch the people that are riding on these horses. It's a powerful army, all right? So that's the context of Joel here. And then all of a sudden he breaks in to another part here. After he describes the army, the next uh, few verses, 12 to 17, Call the Jews to repentance. He's calling them to change their heart, rend their garments, stop, you know, acting the way you're acting because, you know, they were not living for God. They were not living right. And he calls them to repentance. And then the next verses go on to talk about the millennium where the Lord's deliverance, how when he brings them in the land, how to be a good land. Now, he's partially fulfilled a little bit of this when he brought Israel back from exile into the nation of Israel now in 1948, all right? You know, Israel's a nation because God's promise is on that people for that land, and nobody can take that away from them. I don't care who's president of the United States, who's over the European Union, you know, who's over Russia, who's over, you know, Germany, all the powers that be, you know, nobody is going to be able to take away God's promise that he made to his, these people for that land. So verse 18 through 27 begins to talk about this promise and all the good things that are going to happen. But look at this. Right in the midst of that promise, you have this promise of the outpouring of the Spirit in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And we have the same prophecy here. Now, Joel in this prophecy is speaking to the house of Israel that he'll pour out his spirit on them. That he will, that the Israel will no longer be this nation that is weak but even in the tribulation time, God will pour out his spirit. And he will raise up mighty warriors for God during the tribulation, okay? So that's the context of Joel here. Now go back to Acts, and I want to sh- break this down for you a little bit. You remember where I said, underline that word, hearken to my words? The word word in the Bible is logos and rhema. Two different times it's used. Just like love has agape, eros, and phileo, all right? Three types of uh, meanings for the word love. The, the word has a, a rhema and a logos. 
Now, when the difference between a rhema word and a logos word is a, a logos word is a general word. And a rhema word is a specific word or a timely word. I heard uh, one brother say that the logos word is like a well. And the rhema is like the cup that you drink from. It's more personal. So Paul said, hearken to my words, because he's got a rhema word here for the people of Israel. And the Holy Spirit quickened him and gave him insight. How many have you ever received, you know, I received a, a, a rhema word from God, and it, it was in context of one thing, but it leaps off the page and it grabs your spirit. And you're like, that is mine, man. I know he's, I know the context here is Israel, but that he is talking to me right now. Okay, he's not talking to Jacob. He's talking to Jeremy Moore, amen? And it's a rhema word. God uses the logos, but he turns it into rhema. And it's like, oh, you can like, you can hang your faith on it, man. You can grab it. And Peter here gets a rhema word about this Joel prophecy. And he says, this is what you see right here. This is the beginning of God pouring out his spirit on all flesh, like Joel prophesied. Now, it starts here, but it will run all the way through the church age. It will run all the way through the tribulation, and it will be the thing that prepares the world for the day of the Lord. Amen? It's the thing that prepares the church for the day of Christ. The Holy Spirit is what we need to keep our fires burning for the Lord. Amen? So like Brother Paul taught on Sunday, you know, we won't like, be like those virgins who are without oil, who get left because they tried to borrow oil from their neighbors instead of having their own oil, amen? The Holy Spirit is that oil. He is that flame of fire, and he's, there, he's, got, he's got a flame for every name, amen? There's not a person in this room that he doesn't have a flame for. Every single person that was in that house had a flame above them. The Holy Spirit wants to pour out on all flesh, amen? So he said, this is, the, this is that, what is this? When they said, what meaneth this? He said, this is that. What is that? What Joel said, I'm pouring out my spirit on all flesh. Because the Mary, Jesus' mother, she was speaking in tongues. She was prophesying. There were women in the upper room there. They were full of the Holy Ghost. There were young, old men, women, Rich, poor, everybody was prophesying. Nobody was, well, hey, uh, hold on a second. If you're going to speak the things of God, you need to be credentialed, brother. You need to be of the house of uh, Levi. You need to, you know, no, uh, none of that in the new days. The new days when the Holy Ghost moves, everyone full of the Holy Ghost prophesies. Amen. Who has credentials? If somebody says, what are your credentials, brother? The flame that is for my name, the Holy Ghost. Amen. That's my credentials, the Holy Ghost, praise God. Someone said, you got, yeah, I got my BA. I've been born again. Praise the Lord. That Holy Ghost is our credentials, man. The fire of God. Hallelujah. Now, and that's why in verse 19, then he goes on and begins to say, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And now he's talking about the tribulation. If you can study Revelation, you can study um, the Lord's discourse on the Mount of Olives in Matthew, 
where he talks about the sun will be darkened, you know, the moon will be darkened, there'll be great gross darkness on the earth. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before that, what? Great and notable day of the Lord come, all right? So he begins to finish the prophecy. So from 15 to 21, there's a division there between verse 18 and 19. There's a division there. One part is now in the church age, and the next part is in the tribulation, all right? So to rightly divide the word of God here, that's not one thing. We're not seeing the sun turned into blood. I mean, we have red moons and stuff, but we're not having the the signs, the things that Jesus said that will happen in the tribulation. We'll have birth pains. We'll have things that lead up to that, but the things that the Lord spoke about that will happen in the tribulation, they will come once the church is taken out. So that's why you've got to divide verse 18 and 19 there, all right? Everybody can see that? Now he said, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen, I love that. It's an even playing field of salvation. The Muslims teach that you have to have the five pillars of their faith, that you have to do the different five things to receive, you know, salvation or to receive, you know, uh, to go to wherever they believe that they go. You know, all, you can always tell false religion because even the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons in Utah, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hindus, you know, Paul and, and, and his wife could testify this to Paul. They always have to do some great thing to achieve something, Okay. In all false religion, that's the way it is. But in Jesus, you just only believe. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Because then it's an even playing field. Why? Because the human heart is designed to believe in God. And every person, no matter what country you're from, everybody can call upon the name of Jesus. But not everybody can climb up the Himalayas. Not everybody can travel to the deserts of Mecca. But everybody can believe, amen? Now, look at verse 2 now. You men of Israel, hear these words. Underline that word, words. Now we've swapped back to logos. Now he's giving, he's repeating the general word, the written word and the spoken word of Jesus' ministry when he was here on earth. So we had a rhema word in the beginning, and now we have the logos word. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, signs, and wonders. Your ministry, my ministry, will be approved by miracles, signs, and wonders. That's what Jesus said in the Great Commission. There's another way for the believer to be approved, and that's to study the Word of God to show yourself approved, the Bible says. Amen? Study God's word. Study his word to show yourself approved of God. And your ministry, so that's in the private time, study to show yourself approved in the private, but then in the public, you'll be approved of God to man by miracles, signs, and wonders. All right? Paul said, I didn't come to you with a really clever speech or a good PowerPoint presentation. I came to you with the demonstration of power, amen? It's the power of God that makes men notice that the things that you're saying are actually worth listening to. Praise the Lord. We must have power. Miracles, signs, and wonders. 
Miracles. The sick being healed, the lame being healed, the dead being raised, the devils being cast out. That would be like a, uh, that would be miracles, signs, and wonders. Devil being cast out. That's like, man, that makes you see somebody that's flipping around, crawling around like a serpent. And all of a sudden, the power of God hits them and they bolt straight up and they begin to prophesy and singing and praises to God. That's going to make people think, man, something's going, what? That's, something's going on. She looked like a lizard. Now she's praising God like a beautiful princess. That'll make somebody take note of what you're saying. Praise God. Cast out devils and wonders. Signs over, you know, Jesus, when he was here, he had power over natural creation. Amen? Praise God. I encourage you. When the guy on WWLT gets on there and says, hey, you know, there's a, there's a tornado that's moving into Claremont County. Get outside and rebuke that tornado and tell it to calm down in Jesus' name. Your words and you moving in the power of God, it works. You have that power. It's in you. It's in you, man. Praise God, it's in you. Now, signs, wonders, he was approved by these things. Now, look at this. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. Delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Hallelujah. So first of all, we got to realize that this was God's plan. And, you know, most, most of us, you know, if you don't know that already, you know, it was God's predetermined um, plan or his counsel to have these men seize Jesus. All right? By his foreknowledge. From the foundations of the world, Christ was crucified. All right? Now, God allowed them to take him. But the blood, when they crucified him, was on their hands. That's why Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There was no forgiveness towards God for letting them take him. You have to forgive men. You know, so many times in church, people get angry. I don't understand how people get angry with God. When I hear a Christian who says they're a Christian say, I'm angry with God, I don't understand that concept. I don't understand how a real born-again, Holy Ghost-filled, Bible-believing Christian can say, I'm mad at God. I may not understand God's ways, but how can you say you're mad at God? The person or whatever event happened, if someone harmed you or something didn't go right in our lives, we forgive those people like Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. We walk in forgiveness. We don't have a, uh, this idea of, oh, I'm mad at God. Since I'm on a little uh, pet peeve here, I also can't stand that saying, uh, the church for people that don't like church. What is that? There's no such thing. Then it's not the church. We are the church. We're people. 
The church is not a building. Can't say the church for people that don't like church. You're the church. Church is not a place, it's a people. When you gave your life to Christ, you were born again into one body by one spirit. You're the church. You can't say the church for don't like church. People that don't like church. What are you saying? You are a group of people that assemble who don't like people? Well, what kind of place is that? Who wants to go to a place where they don't like people? So he says here in Acts 2, God God raised up Jesus. See, the wicked hands crucified and, and he was slain. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible that death was going to be able to hold Jesus down. There was no way that death was going to hold Jesus in the grave. Nothing. I mean, I think it's hilarious how they actually said, you know, well, you know, uh, the disciples have been saying that Jesus said he was going to be raised from the dead. Can we maybe get a couple of guards to guard the tomb and maybe put a, a Roman wax seal on it to keep, you know, to keep Jesus in the tomb? Can you arrange that for us? And Pontius in his arrogance, oh, yeah, I'll send a couple of, a couple of guards down there. You could have sent a whole legion down there. Jesus was raised from the dead, amen? Jesus was raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. For David, verse 25, speaks concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in hell. Not hell's flames, not the lake of fire where sinners go. That word hell there, remember, there's a few different words translated to hell. Hades, Gehenna, all right? You have these different places. Uh, Tartarus, there's these different chambers of the underground. And I've taught this before. But Hades was divided between Two places, a place where the wicked go and a place where the righteous go who believed in the Messiah. All right? So when, if, a, if, a, if a patriarch, you know, Abraham, when he died, that's why they call it Abraham's bosom, when David, when he died, he went into the righteous part of Hades. But the wicked went into the place of torment in Hades. And Luke talks about this in chapter 16, with the story of Lazarus, and you should read it if you've never read it. We don't have time to study it out tonight, but it's powerful. So Hades has two chambers, a righteous chamber and a wicked chamber. Now, when Jesus was raised from the dead and he said he took captivity captive, he went down to Hades and he grabbed David, and David was probably like, I knew you were coming, Lord. I wrote about it in Psalm 16 here. That says, my flesh rejoices. I had hope. I knew you were going to be raised from the dead. And Jesus went down into Hades, and he took all the believers that were waiting for his resurrection, and he took them up out of that place, and he took them into glory with him to be with the Father. 
And one day, me and you, for those that believe to the end, will be with those saints, and we will all ride together with the Lord, just as Joel was talking about. So he says here, you will not leave my soul in Hades, all right? Neither will you see your Holy One to see corruption. So David had this, he was prophesying, and look what, um, look what Peter says here, explaining this a little bit in verse 29. He says, men and brethren, let me freely speak with you of the patriarch David. In other words, he's not trying to show disrespect to David, okay? David was a well-respected patriarch. Let me speak freely, though, that he is both dead and buried. In other words, his body is still in the grave. Now, his soul is with the Lord, but his body is still in the same sepulcher that they put him in. Why? Because the Bible teaches us to be separated from the body is to be present with the Lord. When, if you're a believer and you die, your body is in the grave, but your soul goes to be with Jesus. That's where it goes now. It doesn't go down into Hades anymore. It goes to be with the Lord until the resurrection when you will reunite with your new body and it will come out of the grave, just like Jesus's body did. Now he says, you know that his sepulcher is with us. Verse 30, therefore, being a prophet, in other words, Peter's calling David a prophet here, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, or in other words, his seed or his chill, somebody from his, uh, his uh, lineage, according to the flesh now, all right? And what he means by that, it's going to be a, uh, you know, somebody according to the flesh. Jesus was born of the flesh. That's why he had to take on flesh. That's why we have the virgin birth. And don't let anybody try to contradict the teaching that Jesus was born of a virgin. He was. But Joseph was the lineage of David on Solomon's side. Mary had the lineage of David, all right, but on Nathan's side. David had many children. Jesus, he had the, the formal right to the throne because he was on masculine. The masculine side was Joseph through Solomon, but that line was cursed by Jeremiah because Jeconiah set up idols and sacrificed human beings to false gods. And Jeremiah cursed him and said, you will, you, a son of yours will never, ever, ever sit on the throne of David. Now, Satan thought he had him right there. And he says, how on earth now is this promise going to be fulfilled? Well, because through the line of Nathan came Mary. And that's who God used, as we know the Christmas story. God spoke and he says, you shall conceive when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. So God was able to bypass the curse on the Solomon line and brought it through the Nathan line. And so Jesus put on flesh, and he, that physical man that is sitting in heaven right now, there is a, a man, the man of Jesus, and we love you, Lord. We love you. We're waiting for you. He, we know you're there, Lord. And he's coming back. He's Just as I'm a, a, human, a flesh and bone sitting here, Jesus is flesh and bone sitting at the right hand of God. He's going to come back to earth, and he's going to reign 
over the earth for a thousand years. And he's going to reign over Claremont County. All the magistrates in Claremont County are going to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and to his saints. Because this government, that is this, this land that is still here, this is still going to be here. It's not going to be wiped away yet when Jesus comes back. So Jesus Christ and you are going to reign over Claremont County. Aren't you glad all them taxes that they wasted from you? Praise God, the Lord is finally going to be able to straighten up. Aren't you glad? Maybe we can get rid of that stupid bypass they built out there. Maybe we can change a few things. Man, so anyway, so he says here, this man, according to the flesh, verse 30, he raised up Christ to sit on his throne. And he, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. All right, so why did David speak of the resurrection of Christ? How did, why, would he, why would he speak about the resurrection here? Well, we know in Psalm 16, he said, I know he's going to be raised from the dead, but he also wrote in Psalm 22 that he was going to be crucified. So if he was going to be crucified and he knew that he was promised to sit on the throne, he knew that God must have been, is going to have to raise him from the dead. Who else spoke of this? Look at the, go over with me to Daniel chapter 9 real fast. Flying through here real fast. If I'm talking too fast, just tell me to slow down. Sometimes I get fired up here and I, Daniel chapter 9, are you there? Now look with me in um, verse, this Bible I have is the hardest pages. Verse 26, now look at this. This is Daniel prophesying here. And if you've never studied the 70 weeks prophecy out of Daniel chapter nine, fascinating, changed my life. I'm, pro I'm probably a Christian today because of this prophecy. After three score and two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince shall, that shall come shall destroy the city. So there's a prophecy here in Daniel where when the Messiah comes, he's gonna be cut off, all right? Now that word cut off there is the word karat, which means to cut, all right? To cut. Now you know where else that same word is used? In Genesis 15, 18, make a note in your Bible there next to Daniel and look at Genesis 15, 18. So in the, when Jesus comes, the first time, he's gonna be karat, he's gonna be cut off, all right? Well, what was happening there when he was being cut off? What was happening there? Genesis 15, look at that with me in verse... Um, Verse 18. Now, real quickly, what's happening in this chapter here is God is promised Abraham. He had just come back from a, a great war, and he gave a, 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 a tenth of all his spoils to Melchizedek, the high priest, which is a, in, in Bible college, they call it a theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of thing that happened to Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. There was three that went in, but Nebuchadnezzar said, I see a fourth man. 
That's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. So Abraham gave a tithe to Jesus, the appearing of Jesus in the Old Testament. And then the Lord promised him that he was going to bless him. And look at verse 5. It says, and he brought him forth abroad and said, look towards the heaven and tell the stars if you are able to number them, this is how your seed will be. Now, he did not have a child yet. In verse 6, he says, and he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, that's our foundation scripture, how righteousness is applied to our life. Righteousness is not applied to our lives by what we do. Righteousness is applied to our life by what we believe. When you believe what God says, it impresses him. He likes people that believe what he says, all right? And so when you believe what he says, it counts as righteousness. And then he talks about he's going to give him the land. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur the Chaldees, and I give this land to you to inherit it, the whole land of Palestine area. And he, verse 8, he said, Lord God, whereby or how in the world am I going to know that I'm going to inherit this land? Because everywhere I look, it's occupied. How am I going to know? What can I put my faith on? What can I hang my hat on that I know you're going to do this? In verse 9, he says, take me a heifer of three years old and a goat and a ram, and turtle doves and pigeons. So there are the ranks of offerings, all the different phases of offerings. You know, in the, in the law, there, you know, this is before the law was even instituted, but God gave all these different levels of offerings because some people couldn't afford a whole cow. Some people just came with a turtle dove, all right? But it was still a sacrifice, all right? I love what Pastor Cletty always taught us. He said, Jeremy... It's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. To some people, a turtle dove is the same amount of sacrifice as somebody that brings a whole cow, all right? So he says here, divide them in the midst and lay them out piece by piece. And so he did that. And then later on, as the story goes, he was, his eyes were drifting. He was getting sleepy, you know. And all of a sudden, he just had a vision. And the Lord began to speak to him about the next 400 years of his family's life. He just gave him a, a Holy Ghost download of everything that was going to happen. All right? And when he woke up, he saw a flaming furnace, a fire, praise God, like the Pentecost fire. He saw the fire walking through the pieces that he had laid out. And those of you that study covenant know that when you make a covenant with somebody, there has to be the shedding of blood. So he laid out, so instead of, in, instead of Abraham walking through it, when two families would come together in covenant, they would both walk through the middle of, of the blood alley there. But he says, only one, only him. He's the mediator. He's the keeper. He's the promiser and the keeper of the covenant. So he's the one. The Lord himself walked through the pieces, making covenant. And Abraham saw this. This is how I know that the Lord is going to fulfill what he said to me. Because not only has he said it and promised me, but he's actually fulfilled the act of an ancient 
blood covenant. And then here it says in verse 18, and in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying unto your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates. Now that is not the Jordan River that they're arguing about today. That's not the West Bank. That's not the Golan Heights. That's not, you know, Gaza Strip. That's from the Nile all the way over to the Euphrates River. No one's taken that land from those guys. You know why? Because God himself walked through a blood alley and made a covenant with Abraham and to his children. And everything that God told Abraham was going to happen in them 400 years happened exactly the way he told Abraham was going to happen. Now, when he said in the same day he made a covenant with Abraham, you know what that word made is? That's karat. He cut a covenant with Abraham. The same word that when it says the Messiah will be cut off. When Jesus Christ was why God in his foreknowledge gave him to the wicked men to crucify him. Because God cut a covenant with his people through the blood of his son. Through the blood of his son. The same way that when Abraham, go with me over to Hebrews real quick and we'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 17 or, no, there's not a 17 chapters of Hebrews, brother. Hebrews 11, verse 17. Hebrews 11, verse 17. Now, remember, the subject is, how did David, why did David believe, or how was he prophesying that there was going to be a resurrection? Well, he knew that there was a crucifixion and he knew that he was promised that his seed was going to reign. So he knew that even if they put Jesus to death, God was supposed to raise him. That was the promise. The same thing happened to Abraham. Look at this in verse 17 of chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried or tested, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promise, offered up his only begotten son. So what was the promise? We just read it in chapter 15. Your seed, you're going to have a seed. You, are, you and Sarah are going to conceive and have a child, and from that child, your entire lineage is going to come from. All right? Now God is testing him, saying, you know, Abraham, you know, I know that I promised you this, but I need you to do this. You, did Abraham think that he was going, that God was going back on his promise? No, because God already cut a covenant with him, praise God. God already cut a covenant with him. He knew Abraham wasn't going back on his promise, and he knew Gabriel, God wasn't changing his mind. What he, what he knew is in verse 18. Of whom it was said, Isaac shall thy seed be called, Verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So basically, this was, this was Abraham's mindset, and this is mine and yours. This should be our mindset, okay? 
When Abraham was walking up the mountain with Isaac, he told his troops, me and the lad are coming back down with you. After God had already told him to sacrifice him. But in faith, he knew he was going to, if I'm going to sacrifice Isaac, but as soon as I sacrifice him, he's going to come back to life because God told me he's my seed. So, yeah, I I mean, he wasn't afraid to put the knife down. He wasn't afraid of the crucifixion because he knew that God was going to raise him from the dead. You think God was afraid when Pontius and those wicked men took Christ to the to the whipping post and marched him up Calvary? No, he wasn't because he knew he was cutting a covenant with his son to the entire human race and he knew it was impossible that the ground and the death was going to be able to keep his son in the ground because God's promises and his word, praise God, are more powerful than any force on planet Earth in the entire universe. Nothing can break God's word. Nothing. And God said that Jesus was going to reign on the throne and they could whip him and beat him and crucify him and mock him and make him look like the littlest man and put him in a borrowed tomb like a beggar. Punish him like a criminal when all he did was help people. All he did was make the blind see. All he did was preach truth. All he did was raise the dead and help old ladies who lost their only son. And yet they treated him like a criminal. But you know what? It wasn't even his good works and his signs and wonders that raised Jesus from the dead. It was God's promise that his son is going to reign. And just like Abraham, when Abraham was putting the knife down, he was about ready to strike Isaac, knowing that this is hard, but I know what you said. I saw you walk through the blood alley, Lord. I saw the pieces. I know the covenant that you made with me. I said, how's this going to be? You cut a covenant with me. Your word is on this, so this is on you, Lord. And as he got ready to strike, stop! What did he find? He found the sacrifice in the bush. But what did he tell his son when they were going up the mountain after he said to his troops, me and the lad will return? Father, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And he told his son, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice, prophesying that God himself was gonna come and bring the sacrifice and that's why where it says Messiah got cut off, the karat, when God, in that midst of the week, and that's why they couldn't understand it. The Jews were completely blinded, and many are still blinded today, not realizing that God was cutting a covenant with the human race with the sacrifice of his son. And then, to be now that the covenant is cut, the person that, he, that cut the covenant by letting himself be rent raised from the dead, and now forevermore, he is the mediator of the covenant. So not only was he the one that actually was used to cut the covenant, but now he has been raised forevermore. Make sure that that covenant, no one will be able to mess with it, praise God. Nobody. Nobody can break God's word in your life. Nobody can break God's promises. You know, you get the reign of God in your life, and you hold on to it like Abraham held on to it. 
To the point where it may, people, you'll get criticized by your family, criticized by your friends. Why you, man, I got God's word on it, that's why. And God walked an alley of blood. Just like Abraham saw him, Jesus hung on a cross to prove to the whole world that he is means business. His promise, he's cut a covenant with the human race. And he was raised from the dead. And that's why in when Peter is, this is like the, one of the coolest sermons, Peter. I can't believe, see, you can have this kind of power with the Holy Ghost. You can go from a failure to a nobody to like bringing such great truth when the Holy Ghost gets upon you. Peter preaches one of the greatest sermons ever here, and he calls David a prophet because David preached the resurrection of Jesus. Closing with this final verse here. He, seeing this before, verse 31, Acts 2, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Or Hades there is the, trans, is the uh, literal. And his flesh would not see corruption. And this Jesus has God raised us up. Wherefore, we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, which he has shed forth this day, which you now see and hear. Let me read that again. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David has not ascended into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your foes your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, both Lord and Christ. Okay, so he is the king that will reign on David's throne but he is also the Messiah that will forgive the nation of their sins. He'll forgive us of our sins. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, guys.